Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trunarne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 100 of the podcast, the topic is The Future of Medicine is Invisible. Our guest is Bertalan Mesko, director of the Medical Futurist Institute. In this conversation, we talk about the emergence of rapid healthcare transformation, current best practices, and we cover the many disruptive forces affecting medicine, how to track trends, what will medicine look like in the next decade. We discuss the advance of digital health and beyond, and I find out how Bertalan tracks signals from SciTech, startups, stakeholder dialogue, and visionary thinking, and how he experiments on himself testing out each medical innovation before recommending it or even writing or speaking about it. Bertalan, how are you today? Thank you. I'm, I'm doing really fine. How are you? I'm doing well as, uh, as well. I, I thought it is a super, super nice time to, to be talking to you because medical futurism, there's no more important time for, for that, Bertalan. I, I wanted maybe to hear a little bit from you how you became to be a medical futurist. I've looked you up a little bit. Um, you are a geek physician, it says on the internet. That's a funny, that's a funny term. You won a bunch of prizes uh, early on, so I'm guessing you kind of quite quickly uh, were discovered as a, a bit of a talent in various fields. I, I, I saw that you're also a member of Mensa, uh, so that's interesting. And then you're a member of the Cairo Society, which I found on the internet called a stealthy club for tech moguls. So this is about what I know uh, about you, apart from the fact that you're a professor at the Semmelweis Medical School in, in Budapest, in Hungary, where, where I believe you're based. And, and of course, your uh, career as a futurist, uh, you know, interspersed uh, in some way with, uh, you know, a medical degree and a PhD in genomics. And then you're obviously a prolific writer and uh, author and uh, podcaster, I guess. And, you know, you're, you're a little bit um, all over the specialty media around medicine. Did I get any of that correct? You are too kind to me. That's the point here. Uh, the, the general <laughs> goal I had at the age of six was to dedicate my life to science. And um, and life sciences seemed to be the most exciting to me. That's why I went to medical school. That's why I did my PhD in clinical genomics. But as soon as I, I finished this, so I reached the childhood dream that I had so many years ago, I felt that something was missing. And, and that's where the, my geek part comes into the picture. What was missing was my love for technologies. And as there was no profession where I could combine my researcher background, my medical background, and my geek self, I had to start designing a new profession for that. And that's medical futurism, which is somewhere between life sciences and um, social sciences, especially futuristic studies. Uh, what I do now, we have two arms at the Medical Futurist. Uh, I lead a team of 12 people and we try to help patients, physicians and policymakers worldwide about almost a million followers better understand what has been going on in healthcare in the 21st century. We provide the context around announcements and new technologies. We try to avoid the hype and work again against rejection to help people understand what's going on, what we can do, how we can reach a desired futuristic scenario for healthcare worldwide. And at the Medical Futurist Institute, uh, we do the same, but through peer-reviewed research. We publish studies about how 
AI is being used and will be used in medicine and healthcare and, and why digital health is indeed a cultural transformation, not a technological one. So that, that's how I have been becoming a medical futurist. And that's how I built this, the, the medical futurist uh, organization around this idea. But Talan, there's so many things to pick up here, but I, I, I'm going to start with the one that you said you want to avoid hype. That's a contradictory statement when you call yourself a futurist, but I know where it's coming from, so I want you to explain what you mean. As a geek, uh, it's easy for me to to jump into hype because I'm I'm excited about using advanced technologies, especially in my own healthcare, in my own health management. When I first used a, an ultrasound device with uh, with guidance from artificial intelligence, it blew my mind away. It was like meeting science fiction, or one of the for the first time I could use a, a mixed reality application to uh, dissect a human body without physical limitations or the formaldehyde smell. It seemed like living in science fiction. But it's a very much, very much important part of my job to avoid hype because hype is dangerous when it comes to medicine and healthcare. Um, just to be practical here, um, around hype, of course, mostly I'm talking about artificial intelligence. If we, if I help the idea move forward that if a company uses AI, they must be amazing, then I create a, a danger for patients and physicians alike. At the same time, if I'm very slow at adopting new technologies or understanding them, then I might be the blocking, I might be the, the one blocking the progress um, ahead. Therefore, even though futurists tend to um, talk quite optimistically about the future, and I am indeed an optimistic person, I have to be very cautious about, uh, about using hype to make a point. I like what you're saying. And I think, especially in the field, the joint fields, I guess, of medicine and uh, kind of hypable technology, so especially things like AI, where there is so much to talk about, very easy to get carried away. But also generally, I was just referring to the, the field of being a futurist, which you know, for me certainly is a new label that I just started using. And it's something which, you know, as a former kind of academic in a part of my life, it, it is a very controversial term. So because, you know, even when you start saying that you're actually engaging with talking about something that hasn't happened, of course, you are outside of the field of traditional academia. So there would be people who counter your <laughs> statement to say everything that one does in that domain is hype. So it's it just interesting to hear you speak about it because I think it is such a fundamental thing to not let the future just happen, but have an opinion about what seems to be emerging. And, and I um, praise you for that. So with that, maybe we should go into some of the specifics. One of the things you say uh, that I've heard in various other places, you say the future of medicine is invisible. What do you what do you mean by that? To to keep it practical, I'd like to think about the near future of healthcare as <clears throat> as we have been thinking about our cars. Of course, a lot of data have been available in our cars, but only in the recent years we started getting good interfaces for them. So we could access warning signals. Like if I see an engine light coming up, of course I won't leave for holiday with that car. I will take that car to the service because I can deal with that. And I know that there is a danger that the car might break down. We work the same way as human bodies. Our health works the same way. 
We do have the data even more than cars do, but we have no interfaces for that. So when I say that healthcare should be invisible, by this I mean that it should not be around, the, the, the futuristic vision about healthcare should not be about using a bunch of big technologies that patients need to deal with. Not, not more interfaces and more sensors and, and digital tattoos. It, it shouldn't be about this image that we are we are embedded, we are we have, we have variables and digestibles and all those sensors around us that we have to deal with so we can make it work. In an ideal way, it should be invisible that we do use technologies, but we don't even recognize them anymore as, as technologies around us. Um, to give it even more practical, in our vision, the doctor-patient um, visit where we have, you know, quite a lot of interfaces. We have monitors in, in between them. And doctors usually, as soon as they start talking, they turn to a monitor and they start typing in data through the keyboard. Instead of that, I would remove all those interfaces and would allow those two individuals to have a normal human conversation with eye contact, building a relationship based on trust. But in the meantime, they should be surrounded by advanced invisible technologies, uh, voice-to-text application that can write down the major things, the summaries of what they are discussing into the medical records. So physicians only have to check those at the end, but not input the data themselves. Sensors that patients can use and wear without them even again recognizing that day by day. Chatbots, um, AI-based algorithms in the cloud that can help them make the best medical decisions based on the medical knowledge, experience, and studies out there. So that's what I mean when I say healthcare should be invisible. And invisible to you is generally a good thing because you're assuming that all these things have been put put there by some sort of consent and that they're generally hopefully going to contribute in a positive way because invisible to some people when it comes to technology is uh, is dangerous, right? Because they're, they're thinking it's too invisible. It's a fair point, but we have been using such fairly invisible technologies and our privacy has been leaking. So I'm, I know I, I have a very aggressive view on, on the privacy question uh, when it comes to digital health technologies because it's simply impossible to keep our privacy intact by developing those technologies. That's that's simply physically impossible. Algorithms only get as good as um, we feed it with the, data, the kind of data we feed it with. Um, Health sensors can only get better if the, those companies get access to data coming from medical records, smartwatches, all the lifestyle insights we can share. So it's I don't think it's possible to, to make healthcare invisible and also keep our privacy intact because by making healthcare invisible, there's a, quite a big chance that we would have a, a, longer, a chance for a longer and healthier life. That's the whole essence of digital health. But, but privacy will be breached and that's something we have to get used to. The real question is, I think, how much of my privacy I'm willing to give up in exchange for a chance for a longer and healthier life. And as long as I'm the one making that decision, ethically, I feel fine. Well, this is going to be one of the crucial questions of our time, isn't it? I'm, I'm curious, when it comes to regulating algorithms so because it's not just about the technologies the physical technologies right and it's not just about the data but it's about the, the way that the data is used um, the debate right now is a little bit about transparency and it's also about control are you saying that governments and big tech and, and small tech because i'm you know you track a lot of startups which we'll get to 
should they all be less concerned about making their algorithms transparent? Or do you say, or would that, do you think, go hand in hand with keeping the innovation flowing? No, I'm saying that they should be very much concerned, but I'm saying that on the other side, on, on the consumer side, it's it's impossible to expect that we can benefit from using these technologies, but our privacy will be intact. Um, and using the example that you used about uh, regulating algorithms, the FDA, you know, before medical devices were regulated in the traditional way that they checked the device, every documentation around the device, safety studies, every data that was that was available about the device, they checked it, and then they approved the device to come to the market and be commercially available. Then artificial narrow intelligence-based algorithms came to the picture. First, logged algorithms, which were written in a way and they would keep on uh, those algorithms would keep on working in the way that they were they were written and the ai the the fda started regulating them uh, in a way that they understood that they had to regulate the company not the actual algorithm because maybe a company can come up with hundreds of these algorithms in months based on the the machine learning method they use so it's easier for the regulatory body to regulate a company and allow them to come up with as many efficient algorithms as they can but now there are more and more adaptive algorithms that learn with every decision that the algorithm makes. And the more data these algorithms receive, you know, the better decisions those can make. So they are adaptive. And in that sense, it's, it becomes an impossible challenge to regulate every single new technology coming to the medical market because it might be a thousand new technologies a day. And for each, there might be a thousand new versions and iterations every hour because that's how fast these algorithms can change. But the, the regulatory agencies, I think, especially the FDA, uh, have been trying to, to be ahead of the curve. I'm not saying they're doing the perfect job, but we are getting there. But there is zero question that every company developing such technologies and applications must be aware of the, the privacy issues. They have to be very rigorous when uh, submitting information about their technologies. But it would be an idealistic idea that it would be possible to regulate every single technology that comes out. Because now, because of adaptive algorithms, we see that it is not. It is impossible. I, I see. Your, I take your point that it's impossible to regulate it in the old way. But the question is, there might be a new way of regulating it, right? Where you're thinking, uh, where you have machines regulating machines in a certain sense. So it could be more at the infrastructure level. But let's uh, let's leave that for a second. I mean, I think that's th that's an interesting point of view. I, I do. I see your point. It, you know, for innovation to occur, it's it is for sure a trade-off. Um, and I think there are a lot of people with expectations that. Medicine, you know, for, from uh, many consumers' point of view, it has taken a long time to develop both technologies that are really helping people, but also uh, consumer-centric uh, healthcare, which you know has, has been talked about for a long time. Where are we with with the consumer right now? Because you, you know, we are, we were just talking about tech companies and and science uh, on you know on the health side, but the consumers are also a crucial part of this. Where, where do you think we stand with the consumers really being in control? I think there was even a, a direct-to-consumer digital health boom before the pandemic, but the pandemic made it even stronger, mm -hmm. an even stronger trend, simply because there is a chance of getting to be to being exposed to the infection if we have to go to a laboratory to be to have a blood test 
or to meet a medical professional in person and see people, meet people in the waiting room who might be sick. Therefore, the at-home laboratory test market, for example, has been booming in the last year or so um, because it's possible to measure a, a whole range of blood markers and other parameters through at-home lab tests. Regarding the, the original direct-to-consumer market, which was mostly about health sensors and smartwatches, so fitness variables in a big group, um, now hundreds of millions of patients or consumers have been using them for years. Uh, so we are getting there. The issue is never about the, the business need or the, the market. It's always about the, the very unique features of how medicine as a system works. And medicine is very slow. People in medicine are very slow at adopting changes. Regulations are even slower. And uh, evidence-based medicine uh, is on the throne, which is a good thing. We have to make sure that everything we use has enough evidence behind that, that medical professionals and patients alike could use it efficiently and safely. But that's a big block uh, in the progress uh, ahead of these direct-to-consumer services. But as an average consumer, even myself, you know, I have been able to quantify my sleep quality and use a smart sleep alarm to wake up at the best time. Coming out of light sleep, not deep sleep, I've been using many types of fitness variables and smartwatches to motivate myself for exercising 30 minutes on average every day. I've tried some stress sensors. It didn't work out that much for me. It made me even more stressful to see how stressed I was. Uh, I tried out some EEG um, sensors to try to meditate better, which helped in a way, but I couldn't find mindfulness with a gadget on my head, so I stopped using them. But I, I had my genome sequenced. I learned what kind of medications I would have a side effect for, what medical conditions I might have a higher risk for. So we designed a preventive plan with my primary care professional. Uh, I had microbiome tests to learn more about my diet and a whole other range of technologies I've tried along the way. So I would say that um, the, the direct-to-consumer market is is pretty much progressing still in these years. Um, hundreds of millions of patients have access to these. Of course, a lot more do not have access to these, and there is a widening gap, and not just about the access to technologies, but also about um, digital health literacy, and that's an issue. But... I see no reason not to believe that um, digital health will make patients the point of care. That's the end goal of this whole cultural transformation that we see happening in the 21st century. You know, I see why people flock to your site and your arguments because one of the things that makes you credible is that you have spent a lot of time experimenting on the things you talk about. You're not just talking about the future of healthcare, you are experimenting on yourself, which goes into this great medical tradition, I think, which, you know, in which you are exposing your own body and mind to the very things that you are either recommending for others or experimenting with in your research. So I commend you for that. And I wanted to ask you, um, there must be a lot of disappointments also along the way, like you've talked about some of them. Not all new technology works right off the bat, right? Well, without even saying company names, I've had some really bad experiences. Like I was very excited about um, a company coming up with a smartwatch that can measure blood pressure in a very efficient evidence-based way. And it did, but it was really huge 
uncomfortable to wear. And it didn't measure blood pressure like a smartwatch measures heart rate, but you had to stop, um, elevate your arm to the level of your heart, wait for a few minutes. So it was a very uncomfortable session. I've tried um, genetic tests that that um, that claim too much, such as giving you your psychological personality traits. Of course, as a geneticist by training, I knew that it was not possible, but I wanted to see it in action. And of course, it was not the case. It's, it was too good to be true. But I think the most important things that I've learned, that I've learned along the way, were not about the bad experiences, but about those side effects that every consumer will come across, such as cyberchondria, the, the chance that the more technologies you use, the more data you receive, the more hypochondriac you become, simply because you see those things now in action. When I was a medical student studying pathology for the exam, we had all the medical conditions we learned about because we were dehydrated and tired and exhausted. And of course, I had those symptoms for the same you know, infectious diseases. The same applies to seeing more data about yourself. I learned about anxiety, the anxiety consumers might have when, um, when waiting for uh, the results of a genetic test. That's an anxiety. I had to click whether I wanted to learn about my Alzheimer's risk. You know, how do you make such decisions without consulting your medical professional, without seeing examples for that in your, you know, the previous years in your life? Um, I've learned about the freedom of choice and how amazing it is to use a smart sleep alarm, I think the holy grail of health tracking, and I can't understand really how someone doesn't use a smart sleep alarm. Yet, sometimes, like during the weekends, I, I want to go to bed without my smartwatch. Um, I will wake up maybe in deep sleep, not feeling so energized, but at least, at least I keep my freedom in a way. So I have complete freedom of choice, but do I? If I go to sleep without a smartwatch, without the, the, the smart sleep alarm, I will not wake up feeling energized. Maybe I will, like one in a five yeah, is the chance that I have for that. But I want to keep that chance because it makes my whole day better. So I have freedom of choice, theoretically, but practically I don't. And I could only learn about these issues while, while facing the challenges other consumers face too. So I had to use these things in my life for the last decade or so. Would you say that medicine and these sort of devices uh, tracking us, have they already fundamentally transformed healthcare or are they still a promise? I think somewhere in between. Um, and the issue why is not because technologies are not ready to transform healthcare or they are not advanced enough to make it happen. And the reason is because most people in healthcare expect that digital health is a technological revolution because we use technologies for that, but, but it's a cultural transformation. And by that, I mean, we even published this in many papers that it's a cultural transformation because it's the, the, the changes that are cultural are much more fundamental than the technological changes. Some examples include the, the, the way the, the traditional hierarchy of the doctor-patient relationship is transforming into an eco-level partnership or how the role of the, the passive patient, you know, who is waiting for a symptom to appear and then ask for medical help has been transforming into a proactive, empowered patient role who, who controls his or her health and disease management or the way how the, the role of the medical professional who has been the key holder to the ivory tower of medicine has been transforming into a sort of a role of a guide in the data jungle 
for their patients. So these changes are much more profound than which sensor, smartwatch, or AI algorithm comes out next year. And as long as a policymaker, a government, a company doesn't acknowledge that a cultural transformation is going on, which was initiated but not driven by technologies, they will keep on focusing on the wrong thing. They will keep on focusing on which health sensor to choose or whether 5G is a solution for for communication in the hospital or shall we use an AI algorithm for medical decision support. But the real questions are, what could make my physician's job easier and better and, and safer? What could what would make the patients coming to my health institution feel better about the the overall experience they have in healthcare? You know, in every industry, it's crucial what the what kind of experience the consumer has. In healthcare, you don't come across people who say that I was just involved in a you know disease management service and it was amazing. You never you never hear that happening because people don't have a good experience in healthcare because we don't care about how consumers of healthcare. Uh, think about that. So the cultural transformation is the key here. Those organizations and companies that have embraced this concept will be much more ahead than those that have not. Um, I am interested in that. How does that translate into current organizations? I realize your you know your your environment is that one that of experimentation and and sort of testing these things out, but have you seen any hospitals, hospital systems, national healthcare systems, or individual private practices that are truly transforming at the speed of, <clears throat> of the consumer demands and are listening truly to, uh, to these true needed changes and are able to translate that into something today? Absolutely. I, I tried to come up with three examples on three different levels. One is about um, is on the, the the bottom level, the more the most practical level. Uh, there's a hospital in Nijmegen in the Netherlands where they wanted to design a new facility for the hospital, and um, the the professors had an idea that let's use patient design. Let's invite our chronic patients to have their voices heard, because it, you know one way is to uh, hire designers and, and engineers uh, who could make it happen, architects who could make it happen. Or the other way is that we ask our patients what they want to see in action, and then we hire architects, engineers, and, and designers to make it happen. And they did the latter. Then those patients asked for round tables, not the you know original word desks. They, they asked for having a, a designated area within the room with a blue duct tape on the floor. That means that this is the, this is the clinic, there we have a physician examining a patient. And the, the results are brilliant. Patients love that space because they feel like they are valued members of the medical team when they are in that room. Physicians love the space, bec- love the, the space because they feel that um, it's less stress working with such uh, satisfied patients. Um, they, get, they have better questions. They have higher compliance. So for them, it's a better work environment. That's, that's one example for making the culture transformation happen. So not relying on technology, but relying on, on what the consumer wants to see and then relying on technology. The second level is about a medical association, the American Medical Association, because they could have done the job in a way that they would have just pushed 
their medical professionals to keep on to start using artificial intelligence no matter what. Even if they reject the idea, you must use it because we tell you so. But instead of that, they came up with the explainable AI expression. They started giving out very useful practical guidelines about how to read studies involving AI, how to how to use an AI system developed by a company in your healthcare organization. So they, they, they try to keep it practical and help physicians understand what kind of benefits they can gain from using AI. And the third level is the governmental level. I was invited by the, the Senate of Canada uh, to, to give them a, a big picture about how 3D printing, robotics, and artificial intelligence would transform the future of care because they told me that they knew that these technologies would play a role, but they didn't know what kind of role. And then when I described that, it's great, it's so amazing that they are open to these things and they want to learn more, but the original problem or issue is a cultural transformation, and only then when you solve those things, you can reach out to using advanced technologies. They were very... um, open to the idea and and I was astonished by how fast they could change they could change the uh, the policies they they started working on so of, of course I see great changes about that but in a very simple way the way I can summarize this whole cultural transformation thing when I talk to a medical professional and and he or she t- tells me that he rejects the idea of AI I never think that they hate the technology at first I always think that they are afraid of being replaced because they don't understand the technology enough to know that that's not the not the role AI will have in the next decade or so. It will support your medical decision-making like a stethoscope does, of course, in a more advanced way, but the role will be very similar. So, of course, it will not replace you in your job. And as, long, as soon as you understand these emotional concepts that, that physicians, for example, have about these technologies, you can immediately start helping them understand the context around those technologies better. So maybe they, they won't reject it just because it's a, it's a technology that, that um, leads to fears for them. Um, I find that <clears throat> super interesting to hear about the physicians' reactions to technology because, I mean, wouldn't you agree that that has stopped a lot of technologies in the past or at least slowed them down? I mean, arguably, at least this is what the outsiders would say, that you know many hospitals, many private practices never really adopted email you know until a decade later and, and there were some of the very basic technologies that did exist in the consumer space were very slow to adopt um related to that i, I wondered if you uh, could try to comment on you know i find myself in the u.s at, the, at this uh, very moment and it's very paradoxical here right because you have an enormous amount of innovation going on and you have some extremely high level medical institutions but then you have the reality that has been revealed, uh, you know, with COVID and with other, uh, you know, studies and observations in the community that the discrepancies and the sort of like social determinants of health, particularly here, uh, are, are very stark. How do you see that in kind of a futuristic perspective? Is it possible through these technologies or through a cultural transformation, which you say is more important, to actually rectify some of these enormous differences between kind of an Ivy League medical innovation system versus a reality of a not so good average medical system and certainly not so good at, you know, at the bottom level. Thank you so much for raising this. The, the, 
what you were saying, the practical reality today is that if you live in a country with socialized medicine like I do, of course I have access to care immediately, but there is not enough finances left for innovations, for adopting innovations. If you live in a country with a private insurance system, you can get all the innovations you want if you are wealthy enough. And now we know that the 1% wealthiest Americans live about 10 years longer already than the bottom 1%. And that's just about the access to healthcare. So digital health will, will widen that gap in the near future. Because imagine when this gap becomes more about, I can afford a bioprinted liver and you have to wait for an organ transplantation. I can buy an exoskeleton after an accident and go back to work, but you have to be in a wheelchair or you have to leave your job. When, when the issue becomes more about not just the access to care, but the access to these advanced technologies, the gap will be wider. But on the, the long term, I'm much more optimistic simply because I think these technologies make healthcare globalized. Right now, your health, your life expectancy, all the major health parameters and features that um, define your quality of life depend on your country that you're living in or you're spending most of your time in. With digital health, healthcare has been becoming globalized, meaning that your individual access to technologies and information, second opinion and peer support would have a much larger impact on all those life quality features than your country's healthcare system. One example here to keep it practical, uh, theoretically, and I've seen actually stories like that, I could submit a cancerous tissue sample to a startup in Belgium. There is one actually doing, doing such a job, such work. They can sequence the DNA, uh, the, the DNA sequence of that cancerous tissue. They could tell if there is a so-called driver mutation in my tissue, trying to find matches in the international database, maybe being on the Amazon cloud, so in, on, on US territory. Maybe there is a company uh, doing a clinical trial with precision medicine, targeted treatment for my kind of um, cancerous uh, patients on a Spanish island you know, by a French pharma company. And I could go there to receive, again, the best treatment possible in the world for my cancer for free, because that's how they run the, those clinical trials, without meeting anyone in my country's healthcare system. I'm not saying that it sounds great or it's ideal, but it is possible to, to get access to healthcare technologies like that. And, and the pandemic just made it, I, I almost said even worse, but it's even stronger. <laughs> That's the right word here. Because before, um, it was more of a choice than a must, whether to use technologies in, in care or not. Now, you know, it became a must. We either use technologies so we could receive or provide care, or we had no chance for that because of the pandemic. And I'm afraid that is the new norm. Uh, remote care will be, will be the initial line of primary care. It has been a luxury to meet medical professionals in person for every minor health issue we might have. And then... Um, we will organize healthcare beside that first initial technological line. Again, I know it doesn't sound ideal, but that's the sustainable model that, that we see in, in healthcare worldwide. And while healthcare is becoming globalized, I remain very optimistic that, that we will be able to access better services because maybe another country might have a service in there that might be more tailored to my needs than what my own country can provide. 
I mean, that's very hopeful. And I think for people who are resourceful and look up those trials, this could happen in like individual cases. But if you think about what the solution might be for <clears throat> the 80% or even just for the 10% of the population that are essentially unbankable or whatever, you know, at that level, uh, w- what do you think the solution is there? Is it possible to envision a kind of invisible healthcare system that is so inexpensive on a systemic level that I guess some of these sensors that you speak about will get to a price point and I guess broadband and some other prerequisites or or the 5G version, you know, some mobile version of, of that can get these people connected to a meaningful AI system that can at least monitor their ills. And then, of course, the next question becomes, how do they treat their ills? So unless they can do it themselves inexpensively, you know, not everybody can hop on a plane and travel to a different country, even if the clinical trial is free. I'm just trying to, you know, if you look into where this globalized uh, picture is going, it would seem to me that you can reach quite a few more people and you are not entirely landlocked to your country. But it's not immediately obvious to me that it solves all problems. It won't. And I'm afraid with this this answer, I have to be more theoretical than practical. Uh, For those people, unfortunate people who might be left behind by these technologies, it's not only about the the lack of access to technologies or information. It's also about speaking English. Just a study came out a few days ago. um, How many disadvantages people get, patients get, if they don't speak English using a range of technologies, uh, even remotely? Um, I I don't know the the solution for that, but I've seen a good example that might give hope uh, to these underdeveloped regions or the or the underprivileged people, and that was uh, Rwanda in Central Africa. They had a genocide more than 20 years ago, and uh, they simply didn't have the financials to build uh, a traditionally normal healthcare system. Uh, So instead, they took a leap into digital health. They started inviting companies into the country that could test their technologies there as a testbed, but they gave them quite a lot of freedom, and they gave them quite a lot of data coming from patients. So uh, in Rwanda, they started using drones to deliver packages from a company called Zipline. They started uh, a collaboration with Babylon Health from the UK using AI analyzing medical records. Uh, they started providing remote care services to about 60% of, of the population. So maybe it's possible that that um, in Rwanda, an average citizen has a much bigger chance to get remote medical help right now than you or I living in our respective countries. Simply because they had to take a leap into digital health. I assume that means that those countries that will take a leap in the same way into digital health, investing into these services and and focusing on remote care instead of providing services in person most of the time, might have a better chance to to, to still provide services for those you know underprivileged people or people living in underdeveloped regions where the infrastructure has not been enough or good enough to build traditionally normal healthcare systems. It's fascinating, this uh, potential to leapfrog is, of course, a massive discussion in development. But there have also been experiences where you were attempting to leapfrog, but you were introducing a technology that was, to your point earlier, the cultural preparation of the people either using it or implementing it 
wasn't up to snuff. And even if it was a nice startup demo or something, right, it doesn't work in a different context. So uh, I guess that that becomes uh, the question sometimes. But let me uh, me ask you this. What are some of the uh, startups that you are seeing that near term have thought through many of these Adoption issues, these, uh, you know, how, how their technologies and products are going to actually work for a wider group uh, that have the potential to become these kind of global healthcare leapfrog uh, companies. We, every year at the Medical Futurist, we publish a list of the, the 100 digital health startups we are the most excited about. Of course, it's mostly my subjective, it's about my subjective choices, but we do plenty of research behind that. And I can tell you, Companies that that have a good oversight over all these issues, but there are some that I like to see that have been doing it in the right way, as I would say it. Um, one is definitely a life core now called Cardia, a US-based company that has been developing ECG sensors connected to smartphones. And the one thing that they have been doing tremendously well is that from day one, they focused on providing the right evidence-based studies behind the idea. They knew that even if they had the best ECG sensor in the world, by best I mean the smallest, uh, most comfortable, with the best AI algorithms, analyzing the results right away, providing remote help if needed, even if they had the best ECG system in the world, without evidence-based studies, physicians simply haven't been able, couldn't been able to implement them into action. So they have been publishing dozens of studies about their technology and many medical professionals and even professional associations have been recommending using them. I think that's how a medical a company developing a medical technology, medical device should, should do it. Um, I have liked Withings from France. You know, they were sold to Nokia a few years ago and then they acquired themselves back and they have been producing um, direct-to-consumer health sensors. Um, I like them. I used like two two devices from them still in my average day uh, uh, today. Um, I liked Viatum, a company in China that has been producing portable diagnostic devices. Um, I liked Nima, a company producing food sensors. But again, none of these companies can address all these issues because a food sensor company, you know, why would they focus on um, uh the rejection from medical professionals. Well, they focus on the cultural transformation. So they knew that they are not producing a food sensor primarily, but they are producing, they're creating a network of people who have food allergies and can reach out to each other. So why they, of course, sell the device and and you can check whether your food contains peanut or um, gluten on your plate with the device in like three or five minutes. They also create an, an, uh, many lists of restaurants and places where these people with food allergies can safely go to. I think that's an excellent way of um, embracing the cultural transformation behind these technologies. But again, there are about 100, about 20 of them focusing on AI, about 20 focusing on remote care. There are many others in 3D printing, bioprinting, 3D printing drugs, uh, 3D printing even prosthetics. There are some focusing on health sensors and smartwatches. So the range is quite large, but I don't think that that startups should be the ones um, tackling all these issues. Primarily, regulatory agencies and health governments should be the most knowledgeable people 
about this issue so they can make sure that the policies, the guidelines they create will create a platform for these, for these companies so they can bring their, their good products to the market. We haven't talked about COVID, but you've been in a privileged position, I guess, to sort of observe both the innovation and the failures in COVID. And you're also located in Europe, which has been an interesting case study in and of itself. How how do you see it now? Like we have all experienced 15 months of this. Uh, what is your high level take on sort of what this has done to, to the medical system? I don't want to sound too okay or self-confident, but from day one, I had zero doubts that we would have a vaccine in less than a year. But I had a lot of doubts about um, false information and um, people sharing uh, false news about medical facts and studies in social media. Even I, last year, I said that 2021 would be, a, be about a battle, a battle between um, a, a huge scientific achievement, the vaccines, versus you know spreading false information through social media i i've lost some hope in humanity altogether because of that um, but maybe that's a sign for us in science that we are not doing our job well enough um, i've been teaching medical students for, How so? for science communication for a decade and it would be crucial for us to be able to describe these issues and facts not just well enough that people can digest and understand it, but in a way that it becomes attractive enough that it reaches enough people. So yes, we are essentially competing with TikTok videos and, and YouTube funny videos and, and um, shows on Netflix. And yes, we have to be that good at communicating these facts and studies. But I think as a scientific community in general, we have quite failed in that in the last one and a half years. So it's interesting. I think the scientific community, you know, thinks of itself as pretty brilliant. But like you said, it has been no match for the TikTok uh, and the social media over the last decade. Why do you think that's the case? I mean, arguably, there's nothing truly surprising about social media. Big tech's emergence is, has been long uh, observed, certainly by SciTech experts. And, you know, maybe not each emergence like when tiktok would show up and the fact that clubhouse you know with its audio uh, became a massive trend in 2021 these things are not hard to predict uh, at least the fact that they might show up but it is more difficult to start communicating in those mediums uh, what do you think is the role of social media in healthcare I think uh, also on a positive note. Absolutely, absolutely. I think the the general reason for that is was not about the use of technologies in science communication, but about the the, the I think the fact that scientific communication is subtle. It's uh, it cannot be loud. If a, a conspiracy theorist starts um, shouting unproven ideas, uh, sometimes really amazingly idiotic ideas about, you know, implanting 5G into the vaccine. I wish we could do that. Actually, it would be an amazing technological <laughs> achievement, being able to implant microchips in, through a, such a small vaccine. It would be amazing, but we cannot do that. Uh, but at the same time, again, scientists cannot have the same voice. We, we are subtle. We have to be very cautious. 
even if we know that the vaccine doesn't cause this or that, if the data is just not big enough, I cannot say that it won't lead to this side effect. I can only say that based on the data we have already, I have to say this or that. That's the, 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 uh, the nature of scientific communication. And while in social media you can be very loud, simply we couldn't compete with that. But social media mm. very much has a place in this. As in my mind, there is never a, a difference between real-life offline communication and online digital social media communication. It's just communication through different channels. So I would never do things on, on social media that I would just not do simply in person. And I think that's the general rule of thumb every scientist and medical professional should keep in mind. But social media does have a place in healthcare communication because it can spread the right news, the right facts, the, the right studies and the explanations that people need so much in an efficient way. But we cannot do that simply because a physician is saying something. In person, it works. You know, when you have a scientist in front of you and he or she is speaking, then you, you, of course you're listening to that because a scientist is standing in front of me. But in social media, if you're not um, funny, attractive, loud, smart enough to make it happen, to use the communication channel well enough, and then simply you won't reach your target audience. So it has a place, but we haven't, by we I mean medical professionals and scientists, have been, haven't been able to use it as efficiently as the other side for now. But it's, there's a progress in here. I think I have a sense of how you operate, but could you, uh, and, and I know we also talked about the fact that you're sort of a short-term futurist, you don't think too much about the longer term, and I'm assuming because you're a scientist and you think that would be speculative and, and lead to sort of accelerating hype, but would you do me the favor of explaining how you are reading what futurists typically refer to as signals? And, uh, you know, in like regular speak, the metaphor of the tea leaves. You know, what are your tea leaves when you are looking into this? I mean, I'm assuming startups is is, is part of it. But if you were, you were giving advice to what you just said, you know, regulatory authorities or any expert that's trying to stay up to date on digital health, future of medicine, what are they going to do with you know the regulatory environment, or or even just trying to innovate, uh, or let's say you were even a large health system or or some large kind of player delivering into healthcare. What are the tea leaves they should be looking at? It's, it's an excellent question, yet a very challenging one, because it very much depends on, on what kind of futurist we are talking about. I'm a near-term futurist with a medical background, so while I love science fiction very much as a hobby, I simply cannot talk about nanorobots in bloodstream, because that's so far away from not being able to download my medical records that I would not have a place in the, in the healthcare ecosystem. I like to think of my job as I like to think of archaeologists and what they do. They look at artifacts, they look at um, fossils and, and try to read papers about the past, and then they try to create um, a vision about what could have happened. We, I, do the same in the opposite direction. And as I'm interested in creating desirable futuristic visions about healthcare, that's one part of my job. That's why we, we every month or so, we publish an executive summary about a certain topic, uh, AI's role in healthcare, or now we have one coming out tomorrow about the 20 very pre precise trends in digital health in the near future. Next month, we come up with one about the future of the top, top 20 medical specialties. So we keep on coming up with these, these visions about the near future of medicine and healthcare. 
But then the second, that's the, I think that's the easiest part because you, you look at data, you look at startups, you look at their track record. I read so many studies. I read even more books. And then we try to summarize. I try to come up with, uh, I try to synthesize what I have been reading and what I have been seeing and turn them into futuristic visions. That's the simpler part of my job. The harder part is, is then the second part is to find out, well, if that's the desired vision for this aspect or perspective of healthcare, then what should we do today to get to that desired vision and not the other ones? You know, that's why I don't give out predictions because I, I'm not helpful by doing that. If I say that mixed reality will be used in five medical schools as part of the curriculum by 2022, so what? I don't help anyone. And in the second part of my job, I have to be helpful. In the first part, I have to provide hope that such visions can exist. But in the second part, I have to be helpful. And by being helpful, it means that I have to be practical enough that the required steps to reach that desired visions, vision can be implemented today, but futuristic enough at the same time that these steps come up with new ideas, maybe lead to a new mindset for policymakers or open up new visions for, for researchers to publish about new, new parts of, uh, of healthcare or medical sciences. So that's, that's how I can summarize what we do. Well, thanks for that. I think uh, uh, that uh, answers my question because, you know, I typically ask guests, you know, looking at the next decade, what do you think is going to happen? But it seems to me that that's not for you a fruitful question um, because, <laughs> you know, things might happen or they may not happen. You're, you're trying to create desirable futures and ensuring that people not just know you know, when things might happen, which, you know, is actually far more difficult perhaps than thinking what is going to happen, but you're trying to change what might happen. Is that is that an accurate description of what, what your quest is? Absolutely, because I could say that in, in, again, by 2022, we would have five medical schools in the U.S. using mixed reality as an official part of the curriculum. I could make that prediction now, but as a company developing those gadgets, if I reach out to 10 medical schools and five would accept that I would give them free devices, and of course it, those would come become a part of the curriculum. But even if I do that, this prediction didn't help the educators in those medical schools, didn't help the company developing the technology, and didn't help the students who would then be able to access those technologies. But if I said that, it's unsustainable not to use mixed reality devices or technologies to, for example, in pathology and anatomy in general. So it's, it, would, it should be a part of medical curriculums. And this is how uh, educators, students, and companies alike can prepare for that, maybe even culturally. Then I feel much more helpful than just by giving out blind predictions. Hmm. Lastly, Bertolan, what, what makes you still an optimist about the future? I always find optimism in science fiction. Science fiction's role in my mind is to make us hopeful about the future. That here is a, a cultural change, here is a, an aspect of our lives, here is a technology that can show that life can get so much better. And as even though I've, again, I've lost some hope in humanity in overall during the pandemic, but I, I think science has shown its power when it was needed 
and science has always stepped up when it was needed. And having the vaccine, having so many of them, and I, I've even published some of the research about what kind of vaccines are coming up, combined vaccines and and other types in the next couple of months. Uh, and that, that has shown to me that, well, this is the way um, using a Mandalorian line here. This is the only way to listen to scientists and medical professionals, to, to see, to reach out for evidence. And this way we can keep on having an ecosystem in which progress has a priority. And if there is a technology that can make life hopeful, or if there's a cultural transformation we can reach to make life better for all of us, then let's do that. So the, the actionable part is the one that makes me hopeful that I can do these things to make life better for everyone. And if we start thinking along this line, um, I, I'm, I'm even optimistic that we will tackle the next few pandemics even better too. I like to end on that note. You said progress has priority. I think that's a, a great statement. Thank you so much, Bertalan, for sharing these observations uh, with my listeners. The pleasure was really mine. Thank you so much for having me. You have just listened to episode 100 of the Futurist podcast with host Trun Arnenheim, futurist and author. The topic was, the future of medicine is invisible. In this conversation, we talked about the emergence of rapid healthcare transformation, current best practices, and we cover the many disruptive forces affecting medicine. What will medicine look like in the next decade? I find out how Bertillon tracks signals from SciTech startups, stakeholder dialogue and visionary thinking, and how he experiments on himself. My takeaway is that Bertillon's notion that the future of medicine is invisible, seamless, and preventive is a great vision to have. In my own forthcoming book, Health Tech, Rebooting Society's Software, Hardware, and Mindset, which is forthcoming on Rutledge this fall, I make the point that the grand challenges of our time demand that we coordinate better than ever before. Shaping the future requires being aware of the opportunities and able to capitalize on them. That's where Bertillon is brilliant, making us all aware of the opportunities. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurize.org or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 88 on the future of virtual care, episode 82 on the future of digital health, AI, or episode 55, AI for medicine. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.